Welcome to the Paul Post podcast, in which Professor Post discusses a variety of national security topics. Professor Post is an assistant director of the Chicago Projects on Security and Threats, or CPOST, and the author of three books, The Economics of War, Organizing Democracy, and Arguing About Alliances. You can follow him on Twitter at Prof. Paul Post. This special extended Paul Post podcast, I'd like to talk about Ukraine in three segments. Firstly, the history, how did we get here? Secondly, the current situation, what is actually going on? And thirdly, the options, how, where do we go from here? And I'm pleased to welcome as a special guest, Professor Pape, who is joining us in what is a really big subject right now. So let's start with the history. Professor Post, there's no surprise here for you, it seems. Didn't you predict this some time ago? Yes, I did predict this, but even I am surprised by the scale by which this is happening. I predicted this in one of two ways, and I think it does get into the history. So first of all, if there's been a continual point identified as a location for a major crisis, major war since the end of the Cold War, it has been Ukraine. That has been consistently the case that IR scholars since the early 1990s have been identifying this as the flashpoint for a future crisis. And this was based on a whole host of reasons, some of which we are now witnessing, everything from going back to kind of cultural legacy and history between Ukraine and Russia, to even just geography and the geographic importance of Ukraine to Russia. This is the, all of these various angles have been identified. And so since the 1990s, this has been the potential for a conflict between Russia and Ukraine has been consistently identified as scholars as being highly likely, or at least if you're going to see a war in Europe, it's probably going to be over this issue. So I think a whole bunch of scholars would not be surprised in that regard. Professor Pape, are you one of those scholars that thought this was going to happen? I'm not surprised that war is breaking out over Ukraine, but it, I wouldn't have picked it out as the most obvious flashpoint. And I wouldn't have necessarily thought that we would have gotten to the point where we have reached in the war itself, because one of the big lessons that we have been learning over the last 15, 20 years is conquest doesn't pay in the modern world. So whether you look at the American conquest of Iraq, where we go in, and then six years later, we're walking out with our tail between our legs because the resistance is just way too much for us to handle, and the politics is way too much for us to handle. Or you look at Afghanistan, where we stay 20 years, spend many trillions of dollars here, and then again, walk out with our tail between our legs. The conquest just isn't paying off. And those are much poorer countries than Ukraine. So although I would have not surprised Ukraine is a flashpoint, I am a bit surprised here that Putin thought that after the experience of America in trying to conquer much poorer countries, that he was going to take essentially the same amount of force that America used in Iraq and Afghanistan, 150,000, try to conquer a country that is 
50% larger by population, almost 10 times more powerful by economic power, and think he was just going to waltz in there when eight years ago, the Ukrainian people threw out his puppet government. So you add all that up, I'm surprised, not that Ukraine is an issue, I'm surprised this guy Putin, who we've been saying is this brilliant geopolitician of some sort, is thinking he's going to waltz into Ukraine like a cakewalk. And I didn't think that Putin would be this strategically uh, incompetent. But he did do that. And so the fact of the matter is, I don't think Putin is being a good realist. I think Putin has been pretty good as a realist up until this year. But for whatever reason, he's gone off the rails. And maybe he's just believed his you know, this thinking that he's in the 19th century and that somehow 19th century power politics is the way to go when modern power politics is different. The rules are different in the modern age and the 19th century is just being thrown out the window. So I would say that though, as I shared, a host of scholars have identified Ukraine-Russian relations as the flashpoint to be keeping an eye on following the Cold War, I too am also surprised, and I think a number of these scholars would also be surprised by exactly what's unfolding here, the, the size and planning that went into the operation that we're observing, militarily speaking. I did say last week, I've actually been saying for a number of weeks up to the war that I did expect Putin to invade, but I was also very clear in that I thought that it would be a much smaller invasion. I thought that he would do something that was more um, face-saving. Maybe he would send troops into the eastern provinces, something along the lines of like a salami tactic, uh, something along the lines of what he did with Crimea in 2014. Maybe send in troops, quickly do a land grab, no shots fired, very simple. And then he could justify it by saying, look, I, you know, I, that would be his reasons for justifying mobilizing all these troops. So I too am surprised for the reasons that Professor Pape just laid out. I too am surprised by exactly what's happened, the scale of this operation and the expectations that or seeming expectations that they would have that this could be done quickly with a smaller force when you're dealing with a country that is much larger than Iraq. So yes, I would agree with the sentiment that this actual campaign, what we're witnessing, is surprising in its scale. So where are we now, Professor Post? We are in potentially what I would identify as scenario one, maybe scenario two of various scenarios that I've been laying out for how this conflict could go. So very briefly, what are these scenarios? So scenario one is a quagmire, right? Scenario one is an attempt by Russia to have foreign imposed regime change, but it goes wrong and they end up getting bogged down into a conflict that can't be decisively won. Scenario two would be similar to that, except they do actually achieve their objective of, of regime change. So the first one would be the Iraq war unsuccessful, what we actually witnessed. The, the first, the second scenario would be a successful Iraq war model, if you will. Third scenario would be actual conquering and annexation of Ukraine. Fourth scenario would be once you've conquered and annexed Ukraine, you then go on to start doing this in other former Soviet republics, you know, truly pursuing the reconstitution of the Russian empire that Putin has been talking about. And then scenario five is major power war, that somehow this crisis, either because Putin becomes overconfident 
or what is becoming increasingly likely because of what we're witnessing, it becomes desperate. And actually it takes actions that bring NATO directly into this and leads to direct military conflict between say Russia and the United States, perhaps because of Russian incursions into NATO territory. So those are the five scenarios. And I think where we are right now is we're very much in that scenario. We're, we're witnessing the beginning of potentially a scenario one. Now, the reason why I say potentially, and Professor Pape can elaborate on this, I'm sure, is we're hearing a lot of bad news about the Russian military operation. But if we go back to 2003, the first several days of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, there was also a lot of bad news. They were talking about how this isn't going at the way it should be going, and they're ha having these problems, this problem. And then eventually it ended up just being two weeks and they conquered Baghdad. So I still think we're still a bit too early to draw decisive conclusions about this becoming a quagmire. But it is clear that it is already harder than what the Russians initially expected. Professor Pope, wouldn't a quagmire be our best outcome from the U.S. point of view and the West point of view? Well, certainly having uh, Russia exhaust its military power in a quagmire in Ukraine would increase the relative power of uh, the United States if we fully stay out of it. So in that sense, that's exactly right. What I would say is that we're definitely in, in with respect to Ukraine, Ukraine has become already a quagmire. One of the reasons that this is different than the opening weeks of the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 is we're seeing real signs of uh, what could well be shirking on the part of the Russian military. You're hearing report, and it's not just one. It's a slew of reports about the Russian lower levels being confused and not understanding that this was, they were intended to go conquer Slav. So this is different in that respect. And we're also seeing that there's been a change in uh, Putin's playbook. So if we look at Syria, we look at Chechnya, we'll see that when he went in there with his uh, military, he was far more brutal from the get-go. Here, this has not been that brutal uh, use of force against and civilians that we feared would happen. And that too is striking that they've changed their playbook here. And you got to wonder here, is that because Putin is somehow a softy now? Or is it that he might have problem getting his own military to be inflicting tens of thousands of deaths on civilians in Ukraine? That may, he may still be able to get that. I'm not saying he's not, but this is, again, something to really uh, notice. And also now you have several oligarchs just today calling for an end of this operation. That means some things are happening inside of Russia, but that's just inside of Ukraine. The big situation is that in the last 48 hours, this has shifted from being just about Ukraine to now it's about the Russian economy. The Russian economy has now been hit with tremendously serious sanctions, and this is already widely expected to have crushing effects on the Russian economy. Well, there was no way in which uh, the world crushed the American economy after we invaded Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. So that didn't happen. So we're now seeing that this isn't just about Ukraine anymore. It's about what's going to happen inside of Russia as its economy goes down. And this is something that maybe we want to talk about in a because this isn't just about sanctions anymore. This isn't just about punitive sanctions. This is about crushing Russia's economy. This is going to hurt the population of Russia tremendously. It's going to have spillover effects on states like Georgia. It could undermine the regime 
regime of Putin, which people might say, oh, that's wonderful, except this is a guy going down who's got nuclear weapons. So we need to think about this as we go forward. And this has only been a recent change. So these slapping sanctions on in the beginning, well, these are minor, you know, sort of flicks of the rapier. This is different, what's happened with the central bank. It's really the central bank uh, destroying. If we destroy the central bank of Russia, that is a huge consequence for the economy of Russia and the people and Putin's regime. Professor Post, what are, what are the options now? Options for both sides. Let's start with Putin's options. We're already seeing one of those options in play, which is, of course, peace talk, ceasefire talks, right? Those have already begun. The question is, what's actually going to be on the table? and What's going to be acceptable, Putin? That's going to be a key question. The other part of it is what's going to be acceptable to the Ukrainians. Because at this point, what one could be very concerned about is that Putin is not going to find the status quo to be acceptable. That would pretty much undermine his entire legitimacy to power and could even lead him to losing power. And what I mean by that is, okay, we're just going to withdraw all the Russian troops and basically just go back to where we were last Wednesday. That is not going to be an acceptable option for Russia. Could moving to just say allowing Russian troops to be in those eastern provinces, could that be an option? Yes, it could be an option. But that's something that also could have been achieved last Thursday morning and quite at a lot lower cost. So that suggests to me that that's also not going to be something that alone Putin would settle for. So what else could be offered? Well, maybe there's the possibility that Ukraine will allow for the signing of some sort of like neutrality pledge or something to say that we won't join NATO. Now, what would be frustrating about that is that would be the kind of agreement that could have been reached prior to this war. And in fact, all of these scenarios are things that probably could have been reached prior to this war, which tells us a lot about what war is, right? That war a lot of times is a test of resolve. It is a test of someone's willingness to stick to a bargaining position. But those are kind of, in my view, that if there's going to be a ceasefire, some sort of solution that's acceptable to Putin has to be reached. And those might be in the realm of facing. Of course, the other option is that Putin is just simply not interested in any of those, that this whole thing is a charade in terms of the ceasefire agreement and that he truly does have these maximalist aims and is going to continue to pursue those. Now, at that point, then you start to wonder, well, what's going to be the reaction of people around Putin? Are they going to allow him to continue to pursue those maximalist aims? Or are they going to take matters into their own hands? And then you could end up with a palace coup. So those are kind of the conditions that we're faced with right now is on the one hand, he could settle for some sort of minimal gain that sadly probably he could have achieved without incurring and causing all of this devastation in terms of lives and the Russian economy, as Professor Pape just laid out. Or he actually is not interested in that and he continues to go forward. So those are the kind of the ways that I see that there are the options for Putin. Options for the West, if you will, for the international community, for NATO. These options are also something where you have to ask, are they willing to give Putin anything? The outpouring of support for Ukraine and the condemnation of this action by Russia are so great that I find it hard to think that they would be willing 
to give Putin any type of concession, that they'd be willing to say, you know what, you can actually, you recognize those Eastern provinces, we'll go ahead and you can have those, right? I, I just can't see that. Or being willing to have Ukraine sign some sort of pledge that they'll never join NATO, especially when Zelensky has now called for, he wants to be in the EU, right? I mean, this is, I just, I can't see that happening. And so this then really, in many ways, it, I guess what I'm trying to say here is the options are such that it's hard to envision who's going to give in at the bargaining table. Someone is going to have to do something that, if you will, doesn't allow them to save base. And the question is, is it going to be Putin or is it going to be the international community that's willing to make a deal, even one that may not be, say, attractive in the abstract? Professor Pipe, who's going to blink first? Well, I think what we're seeing, just to go back to the picture I was painting, is we're seeing the new rules of modern great power politics, which are very different in the past. Number one, conquest doesn't pay. Number two, economic sanctions can be devastating against great powers, whereas uh, in the forest, they're just kind of more minor things. And you're seeing the Russian economy now is really in deep trouble. So that's uh, that's also important. The third rule is very quickly, this becomes the shadow of nuclear weapons. So within just days of this, uh, and even the day before the conflict actually started in Ukraine, uh, Russia was exercising its nuclear arsenal in ways were quite unusual. And now it's alerted its nuclear forces, which does not happen every day in Russia. In fact, we'd have to go back and see, is this the first time that Putin has really alerted its nuclear forces? It may well be the most extensive that he has ever done. So the shadow of nuclear weapons now has come in just within days. So the whole idea that this is going to go on some sort of protracted conventional conflict or so forth, we've got to understand that what's happening is it's the shadow of nuclear escalation here that's very important. Now, what does that mean in terms of concession? What that means is that there's going to be great pressure here on uh, the Americans, the West, and Putin to make concessions to figure out a way out of this, an off-ramp for the nuclear escalation. Now, what might that look like, though? That might look like something like Zelensky, that is Ukraine, promising it will not join NATO for, say, 15, 20 years, sort of like an Iran nuclear deal idea where there is a horizon and say, look, I don't know what's going to happen after 20 years or 15 years, but for the next 15 or 20 years, Ukraine won't join NATO. Now, that is a concession that does not give up any sovereignty on the part of Ukraine. So Ukraine doesn't surrender sovereignty. Putin could still save some face and say, look, I got something that I did not get before which is I got a promise that no one was willing to give me before. Now, that does not mean here that that uh, stops American military aid. So if Putin wants to go further and stop. No, I'm talking about what might be a face-saving way out of this, um, that both sides could come out and claim a victory. And it may not be possible, uh, but my point is that these are the new rules of great power politics here. So the whole idea, this is going to turn into a giant meat grinder in Ukraine when we have uh, nuclear, the shadow of nuclear weapons over the conflict. I think all sides are probably starting to realize that's not a good idea, uh, and not because they don't they don't kill people. Putin has definitely shown he does that, but because this whole idea of great power politics in the modern age this is not the 19th century, folks. The thing that I would add is uh, to this is 
Because I think the the potential deal could be there. And I think there are some face-saving deals. But I was saying this to someone earlier that it's very likely that this war could end up being historically compared to the Winter War of 1939 and 1940. So that was the war between the Soviet Union and Finland. And in this war, the war was about three months long. So I think this war will be much shorter than that, by the way. But it was a three-month war. And the reason why the war happened was because Stalin made demands towards Finland about wanting to have access to certain land and territory in Finland. And the Finns said no. So Stalin ends up invading Finland at great cost to the Soviet Union. Um, the, the phrase white death was used by the Soviets to refer to the Finnish soldiers because they were on skis and they could go around, they would just, they would kill. And it was, it was proportionately speaking, or I guess on absolute numbers, it was quite devastating the Soviets. The problem is Finland has a very small population. So even though they lost many fewer troops, proportionally speaking, it was, it was devastating to Finland. At the end of that war, they ended up agreeing to exactly the demands that Stalin had put on the table at the beginning of the war. And so people use this war, I've used this war in when I've taught intro to IR as raising the puzzle of war. Like, well, wait, they just agreed, they fought this hugely devastating war for three months and ended up agreeing to exactly the terms that were on the table before fighting it. So what does that tell us about war? And I wonder if this is what's going to end up happening with this conflict. And in the end of the day, they're going to end up signing an agreement that could have been reached without any of this bloodshed, and without the economic devastation that Russia is incurring, where Ukraine will make some sort of promise about not joining NATO. Maybe Russia acquires a little bit of territory that they could have acquired anyhow. And it'll then place this conflict in that same category of kind of showing how war is very puzzling from a bargaining standpoint. I think that is a, a plausible analogy to, to where we are. And then that would lead to my fifth rule of modern great power politics, which is the status quo reigns. Um, so when all said and done here, the thing that you see is once you study times when great powers have, which each have had nuclear weapons, have come into conflict or serious disputes, what you end up seeing is the status quo. It's the status quo reigns. So this whole idea that we're talking about, like, you know, again, you could, you know, conquering big territory and taking their industry and amalgamating that with ours and so forth. These are rules of the past. The new rule is the status quo typically reigns. What about domestically, Professor Pape? Biden's critics are painting him as weak. You've got Trump and his supporters actually praising Putin. What's the ramifications for domestic politics here? Well, un unfortunately, um, it's it's not necessarily good, but it's not because of the politics of it. So uh, you're seeing right now political leaders, Trump, so forth, using basically this case like they did Afghanistan uh, for political uh, in political terms. The biggest thing I think is the lesson that is likely being learned is that populations don't have to be governed by their governments as much as we think uh, here. So we need to realize that in the modern age, what we're seeing with the resistance in Ukraine is the, the use of the internet. We're seeing the ability of grassroots people in fairly short order, day, becoming incredible resistance forces. This is something that is concerning as we go forward. I think possibly in the near term, the next few weeks, we might get a bit of a rally around the flag effect, but longer term, 
I'm concerned that we before thought nothing like January 6th could ever happen in our country because we're too rich or we could never have anything organized so quickly in a period of a week or two. Well, if the Ukrainians, uh, watching the Ukrainians, I'm afraid that this is likely to embolden some of those actors in uh, Western democracies. And so I'm concerned about the future here. It's interesting in Ukraine, the government there said to citizens, come and get your guns. In America, they already have them. And we have a lot of ammo too. So this whole idea of, of ammunition, and you're seeing the ability of using the internet for rapid organization. So in social movement theory, we've always argued for decades, the side that's been dominant in social movement theory is that, oh, no, no, people with grievances, they won't do anything because they have no organization. They have no resources. What we're seeing is in rich societies in the West and even in Ukraine, the internet and the money in the middle class, there's plenty of resources and organizational tools. So you get those grievances going. Um, this is this is this is concerning. I'm I'm not I don't want to paint this overboard either because we're also seeing the devastation in Ukraine as well. So I'm pretty sure this is going to have double-edged effects as we go forward. But I don't think we should sit back and think, oh yeah, this will just be a rally around the flag effect. And therefore, the domestic problems will suddenly magically disappear in, uh, in the West. Professor Post, I've asked you frequently to give me a scorecard on President Biden. How's that scorecard doing today? So I think the scorecard from a foreign policy standpoint is, I think he's moved into the A category for this, at least in terms of what we've been witnessing over the past few days. And why, why do I say that? There is absolutely no denying that the massive international response to this is independent of U.S. foreign policy efforts. I think that from the sources that I've seen that the U.S. diplomatic staff has been very hard at work of building up this support. In many ways, it's reminiscent of George H.W. Bush and the efforts that he made to build up a coalition to kick Iraq out of Kuwait back in 1990-91, right? There was huge, you know, they talk about James Baker, the shuttle diplomacy and so on and so forth. Now, this is obviously very different, happening in a different way. It's mostly happening on the sanction side of things. But seeing that is, you have to say the U.S. is playing a big effort with this, especially because you had countries that initially were a little bit reluctant to say something, and then suddenly they are. Another clear indicator of this is the fact that even if you look at like Biden's press conference last week, he kind of called out the Europeans on the sanctions front, right? Because they were asking, well, why haven't you gone swift? And he said, well, our European allies don't want to do it. That's shaming. That's shaming. That is something that like our colleague Rochelle Terman studies is international shaming. And that was a clear example of it. And he did it in a very subtle way where he said, well, we're not doing this because, and then sure enough, within 24 hours, it was a complete reversal. And you saw the Europeans suddenly get on board with this. That's diplomacy. That's Biden being good at doing this. The other way is what we're seeing with NATO, the NATO countries. Germany suddenly is like, okay, we are now spending on defense. We are going to be giving these arms. This is people that I know who are in Germany, who um, are analysts of German defense. They're like, this is a monumental shift in decades of German foreign policy that we've witnessed in just a few days. And that is in part due to the international pressure to it. But many of them have pointed to that there's been a hand played by U.S. diplomacy in enabling this change. So in that sense, 
that has been the subtle ways in which Biden and his administration have been enabling this huge international response. And it is quite notable because it's almost like it's truly kind of the phrase that Obama used leading from behind. It's almost like that's the case. There, He's allowing the Europeans to have the forefront for this, but there's absolutely U.S. influence in enabling those efforts. Just before we wrap up, Professor Pape, what mark would you give uh, President Biden? I would say um, up until now, I'd give him an A, but I'm concerned that could go south pretty quickly. The uh, reason I give him an A up until now is I agree with everything Paul said. The part I would add uh, that's really his, what he did that is really unique is that he used the disclosure of intelligence, very secret intelligence, in order to take away the pretext that Putin could use to justify his actions. Now, why does that matter? That matters because intentions matter in great modern great power politics. And Biden seems to naturally understand that if you can paint Putin as the aggressor and make it unmistakably clear that he's the aggressor, that this would congeal support against Putin. And what he did is he went so far in that belief is that he released classified information that that was kind of a questionable thing, whether he should do this. And it has worked out really quite well. And I can't think of the last president that's really done that with classified information. And I think that's really quite a, that's where I would say it's not just a good outcome. Now, the reason I'm concerned about the future here is that, is that now that the Ukraine and maybe the West has a bit of the upper hand, The question is, do we overplay a hand that's getting strong or do we allow the status quo to reign? So, um, as I said, fifth rule, great modern great power politics is the status quo reigns. Well, that does require people to settle on the status quo, not just Putin, but also the United States and the West. If Biden is uh, will accept the status quo here and go back to it, even with some fig leaves around it, I think that he will get his egg. If not, if he's really looking to rub Russia's nose in this and Putin must come down, mm, this is the danger for the United States right now, overplaying a good hand. Professor Post, that brings us to the end. How about you sum up what happens next? We don't know what's going to happen next. Right? I think we have laid out, though, some plausible scenarios of what can happen next. And I think what I would like to do is just highlight what are a few things that people should be paying attention to. First and foremost is, is folks need to be paying attention to what information do we have about the facts on the ground? Because I really do think that the battlefield dynamics are going to dictate a lot of what occurs, whether it's with the peace talks, whether it is with escalation. It really does depend on what happens. Does, does it become clear that Russia is engaged in a quagmire? Or is this, as I was indicating earlier, just simply due to the uncertainty of initial conflict and it'll start to sort itself out? So that's the first thing that people really need to be paying attention to is what are the what is actually happening on the ground? Second thing that people should be paying attention to is the extent to which the international community continues to stay unified. This goes a little bit to what Professor Pape was just talking about. You know, does is there a sense that maybe they're going to overplay their hand and that could start to lead to a fracturing of this massive international coalition? Now, obviously, no one would side with Russia, but would parties start to pull back their support. That's a key thing that needs to be paid attention to. It's looking at that. 
And the third thing, and you know, a lot of there's a lot of debate about the extent to which you can really pay attention to these things. But I think in this case, you really can pay attention. That is, what is Putin saying? I think his words have actually been surprisingly informative <laughs> about what has been happening so far. There's a lot of talk about, you know, well, cheap talk, you can't really pay attention to talk in diplomacy. But the things he has said have been very consistent with the things he has been doing. There has been a very tight linkage between words and deeds with respect to him, which is part of the reason why a lot of people became very nervous when he talked about putting nuclear weapons on a higher alert status, because he has been very consistent in that regard. So that's the other thing to be paying attention to is what is Putin saying? What announcements are being put out there? by Putin. And I think that if you pay attention to those three things, that's going to give you a good sense of where this conflict is going.